0: Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC Chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hupka, and I am the managing partner of Protos Learning, as well as a chapter past president, and I am a member of the pod squad here at the Metro DC Chapter of ATD.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Eanes, owner of Eens Training, as well as a chapter past president like Stephanie and a member of the pod squad here at the Metro DC chapter.
0: <laughs> we also have our producer Helena Hodges with us. And for this episode, we are interviewing Julie Dirksen. Welcome, Julie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me we're really excited to have a chance to chat with you. And before we do, we would love it if you would tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah. So I usually sort of just, you know, identify as an instructional designer and or learning strategist. I use that term quite a lot lately. Um, But I have (laughs) been uh, involved in kind of learning and development for, Kind of creeping up on the 30 year mark now. Um, oh great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, with a lot of it in e-learning design and things like that. Um. You know, my degree is instructional systems technology and all of that kind of thing. We're having, uh, I'm having a debate shortly with some people about the, are, are should we all be switching to learning experience design? And I still call myself an instructional designer. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of people know me because of a book I wrote called Design for How People Learn, which is, uh, worked out surprisingly well. And that I was kind of thinking it would be a good book for people just coming into the field. And it turns out that that's, that's kind of how it's worked out because so many people come into the field because of domain knowledge. They know a lot about their topic. They get asked to teach it to other people. And so a lot of what I do these days is kind of helping that audience, um, who, you know, have all this expertise in their subject area, but not necessarily a lot of knowledge about how to communicate it or how to teach it to other people. And so that's, that's where, uh, that's where I spend a lot of my time.
0: Well, I have to say too, I, I completely agree. It's tough deciding how you're going to introduce yourself. I usually go with instructional designer myself. I think people understand it. But thank you for for sharing <laughs> that too. I think there are a lot of us try to struggle with you know how we are are describing what we do yeah. these days. <laughs> So the fact that you you're kind of led off a little bit with the with how you wrote a a book that by the way has been recommended by many of our guests here on the Beltway broadcast. Oh, lovely. Uh, de- it, yeah, designed for how people learn. That's really why we're here today. Although I know that you've got a second book out there that I'm sure we're going to stumble yeah. across as we get chatting. Yeah. So I'm going to do something that's probably a little bit unfair. I'm going <laughs> to give you a really big question to kind of kick us off. It is, it is big enough that I feel like I should apologize for it first, but I also (laughs) feel like this will be a good chance to decide how our journey together over the next 20 minutes or so is going to go. The question I want to ask you is kind of what's in the title of your book. How do people learn? Oh, tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, the,
2: the sort of premise of the book is that um, <laughs> depending on what type of uh, gap there is between where people are now and where they need to be, um, yes. our approaches to designing good learning experiences needs to change. So a lot of times we have a big focus on remembering things right remembering information mm-hmm. remembering knowledge but you know we know that in almost all cases with adult information you know adult education um anything whether it's workplace or other forms um is it's not just Remembering the information, it's right. having some proficiency at it. It's uh, being motivated about it. It's understanding the subtleties. It's being able to problem solve. It's a whole slew of other things. So the 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 basic premise is that there's all sorts of things we know from like educational psychology and so forth. If information is the goal or the the challenge, but often. Hmm. Um, We want to look at other things. And so I usually break it up. And in the book, I talk about knowledge, um, information or knowledge. I talk about skills. Um, When I'm doing this in my practice, I also usually talk about procedures. And the difference between procedures and skills is procedures are where we have defined performance We know exactly what we need the person to do. So here's the pre- steps for taking blood pressure. here's the step for filing you know um, mm-hmm. a customer claim or you know whatever whatever it is but we've got very clearly defined like do this, do this, do this. Um, skills are something where people need to practice to get better at it and a lot of times it's places where they need to use judgment or they need there's going to be variability depending on circumstances. So how do you talk to an employee who's been coming to work late? Well, the answer to that really is really different if this has been like a stellar employee for years who suddenly shows up work late, or like the first week that this new employee is on the job and they show up late, or somebody who's been kind of chronically late a lot, you know? So that's a skill area is how do I, how do I have that conversation? How do I negotiate something with that employee? Um, but the answer is it depends. Uh, there isn't a yeah. single set of like, there's like four steps, and you just follow these no matter what the circumstances are. Um, uh, I also am interested in habits because we can have things where we have the knowledge, we have the skills, we can even be motivated, and still it's not happening on a regular basis. And that tends to be things where there's a habit, and then there's some specific strategies we can use when we're helping people develop habits um, so uh, that's one um, then motivation which is I kind of my my quick proxy definition for that one is they know what to do but they're still not doing it (laughs) Um, uh, or they know not to do it. And they still are uh, one or the other. Um, And that one, uh, I think has its own set of problems. And it turned out that even though I had a chapter on it and designed for how people learn, there was way more to say about that. And so that actually is kind of what got expanded into the next book, which is Talk to the Elephant, Design for Behavior Change. And I'm really very much with that one targeting this particular problem of they know what to do, but they're still not doing it you know, how mm. do you, how do you help people when it's not a knowledge problem? Fundamentally, they have the information, they maybe even have the skills and yet, uh, still not happening. Um, you right. know, they know to wear their safety glasses. They know how to put the safety glasses on. They know when they're supposed to wear the safety glasses and yet they're still not wearing those safety glasses mm. consistently. <laughs> um, or they're still not entering the notes in the customer record, or they're still not, you know, um, being mindful of, you know, uh, cues for money laundering and financial situations, whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, and then the last one is kind of its own category, which is, um, we need to change something about the environment that they're in to better support performance, Uh, right? So it's not really a change to the learner. It's a change to how do we fix the system? How do we communicate better? How do we set clear goals and objectives? How do we create better systems? How do we, you know, put things nearby that need to be used? Whatever, whatever the thing is. And so if you take, you know, we all know our learning objectives. We've all, we've all mm -hmm. been that to that training. But if you take that and then you break it down and you say, okay, I think there's some knowledge here. I think there's a little bit of procedure, but mostly skill. And there's a little bit of habit. Then you can start to kind of look at some of these different approaches to learning design and start to make a solution that I think hopefully gets beyond just telling people louder and more emphatically that it's really important to do this thing. So uh, that's the that's the <laughs> general goal, and there's other stuff that we you know that I talk about in the book and things like that um which doesn't quite answer your question, which is how people learn. <laughs> oh it's a good start though but, oh <laughs> it's yeah a big question it does say it i think the 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 question beyond that you know the next question after that is well, what type of thing do they need to learn? Yeah, and then <laughs> what are some solutions? Because when I went to graduate school, I, we all learned: addy, you know, analyze, design, right. develop, implement, evaluate, um, and but there was kind of this just like you learned you learned a bunch of stuff in analysis, and then you just sort of like jumped over to design and then magic happens here. You know, it was one of these things where there wasn't very much saying, if you find out this in analysis, this is going to point you to these learning strategies over in design. And so that's the, that's, that's where I spend a lot of my time (laughs) is trying to, (laughs) <laughs> Help, because we know that, you know, we know a lot of this stuff. There's educational psychology, yeah. there's practice, there's a, you know, there's years of people kind of doing this, you know, through trial and error. But yeah. I, I've been trying to kind of collect it and provide a little bit more scaffolding for people who are new, so that they can, they don't have to, you know, have 20 years of experience in order to be able to get in the neighborhood of a, of a decent solution. So. Oh, exactly. Yeah, nice.
1: Well, and and I, I'd love to dive a little deeper into. In particular, I love the title of your second book, which I think is diving <laughs> deeper into right sure. some of these areas. So, as uh, learning, we'll call it, say, practitioners how do we talk to the elephant?
2: The elephant. So what the elephant is, is there's a metaphor <laughs> and I used it in the first book and people are like, I love your metaphor. And I'm like, it's not by metaphor. It's um, from Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist and it's from a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. I have just shamelessly yeah. borrowed it. Um, <laughs>
1: at, <laughs> Which like, is awesome. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We love it. Yeah. So the idea is, if you think about kind of our brains from, uh, you know, like way in the back of your brain down by your spinal cord are like some of the oldest functions from an evolution point of view breathing and heart rate and reflexes and then there's a lot of stuff around like sensing and perceiving the world you know like what what does the world look like and smell like and sound like and feel like and stuff and so vision and hearing and then we have things that are really about kind of controlling your physical body in the world and so it's your fine gross motor control and your fine motor control and then right in the middle we have the uh, you know the Limbic system, which is things like the amygdala and the hypothalamus, which is a lot of where things like fight or flight and emotional regulation happen. So, we've got really a pretty sizable proportion of our brain dedicated to things like emotions, feelings, perceptions, physical, you know, physical control in the environment Um and so that's kind of what we say when we talk about the elephant. That's sort of what we mean is that whole, that whole, all of those systems kind of aggregated together. And then right in the back, right in the behind your eyes, right in the kind of front of your skull is sort of a more recently evolved part called the prefrontal cortex, which I'm. Drastically simplifying brain geography, by the way, just grain of salt. (laughs) Um, But it's generally considered to be the place that activates when we're doing things like logic and reasoning and uh, planning for the future and impulse control and executive function and all this kind of stuff. So you've got this little kind of, and that's the rider. So it's a rider sitting on the back of a big elephant. So you've got this little logic person saying, hey, I think we should really like get start get started on that report this week because if we don't we're just gonna have to panic at the end and it'll be too much work (laughs) and your elephant is like but there's Facebook right now or you know (laughs) Instagram or whatever right Mm -hmm. um and so you know, I should I should go for a walk because I'll give me more energy and I'll be more you know like energized for the rest of the day. And your uh, you know your elephant is like, but the couch is very comfortable right now. I I think the couch is great. <laughs> well, it uh, is. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And so when we look at these two different systems, things that talk to the elephant are uh, you know things that uh, advertisers understand really well right like the emotional component of it um, you know things that feel real and you can see and you can experience are really imp- important for that um, so you know things that feel like there's a sense of urgency or immediacy attached to it you know um, like there's problem to solve those kinds of things and things that talk to the writer are well logically you know the percent that percentage of people that have this experience in this circumstances is da da right it's the abstract stuff it's the conceptual stuff, mm-hmm. um, and so if you think about it, um, you know, if if we're we all we all just had hand washing um, as a main topic in the last few years. Um, yep. But if I look at my hand right now, it looks pretty clean. Um, but the the elephant's like, I think it's okay. I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> the writer is like, Wait, there's this invisible thing called germs that live on your hand. And, um, when you, uh, don't wash them, those germs could have something bad. We're not sure what we don't actually, we're not clear on the details, but something (laughs) bad could happen in the future. Right. So, um, So, you know, like if your hand actually looks dirty, people generally wash their hands, right? It's Mm -hmm. the the hand washing issue is much more, it looks clean, it feels clean. I washed it not that long ago. I haven't touched that many things. (laughs) I don't know. Do I really need to wash it for 20 seconds? You know, and so this is... So because it's an abstract problem at that point, it's not something that you can look and see or feel like, I think, I don't think we have a hand washing issue when people actually have dirty hands. I think they know to wash their hands in those circumstances. It's the, you're a nurse and you've been working on a long shift and you're tired and this is literally the 900th time you've had to wash your hands today and they're starting to crack and get uncomfortable and, you know, something urgent is happening over there that you want to go deal with. And, you know, that's, and, and I'm not beating up on like healthcare personnel or anything, but these are the realities of, of some of those jobs um, uh, and things like that. And so every single hand-washing curriculum you'll ever find, that, you know, every single good one, I think, um, has some element of trying to make it real to people. What what the bacteria mm. does, whether it's the black lights. If you've got a, you know, really nice, like well-equipped thing and you've got the special equipment, you can do the, see, look, put your hand under the black light and see where the bacteria mm. is. But in the, in failing that they have things where they, you know, with rubber gloves where you like, you know, kind of wash your hands, but then you can still see um, if it, the, the example that always comes to mind when I tell people about that is, is if you were, when you were a kid, you did the thing where you chew the little red tablets and it would show uh, you where hmm. there's still plaque on your teeth. So, <laughs> these are all things that make it real and vivid rather than abstract and conceptual. Yeah. And so, um, the talk to the elephant is, idea is about how should we be talking to the elephant to make these things real and vivid for people? Um yeah. And, you know, things like the emotional impact, we've been talking about storytelling for decades, and there's very good people out there on that topic. But a lot of what that is, is when you take all of the emotional context away from material, then what it actually adds is is a signal to your brain or to your elephant specifically, that this isn't very important. Mm, And so when you are learning all of this stuff, but it's all very abstract and it's all very conceptual, you're relying just on the rider. And the elephant is like, Mm. are you sure you don't want to go check out that thing over there? Because it (laughs) sounds like there's something in the kitchen. Maybe that's more interesting than what we're doing right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I suddenly want to go wash my hands. I know, right?
0: (laughs) What I really appreciate about all of this is that concept of you want to connect with people and make something real. You know, it's recognizing that need to keep the, you know, the humanness, for lack of a better word, as part of any of these learning experiences that we might create. And, you know, I think what that really kind of gets to and what I'd love to hear a little bit more about is... How do you make sure that what you are designing is going to be appropriate for your audience? What strategies work well Mm -hmm. for getting to know your audience?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the big challenges that I see in this too is the fact that, and I have I have been there and I have been on these projects, um, which is (laughs) projects where the whole thing gets designed and we never talk to anybody in the actual audience. (laughs) Oh yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) absolutely. I do not think I have ever not raised that issue. I think I've got it in some Mm -hmm. of my presentations where I haven't heard that. Like, oh yeah, yeah, we know that one. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Right. We've all been there. Um, And you know, not willingly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fundamentally, the way you talk to the elephant is you put things in terms that people will care about. Um, you know, and it right. might be that it's the visceral experience. So, like abstractly, we all know texting while driving is bad. But if I put you in a virtual reality environment where you experience what it's like to, you know, be in an accident with, because of texting while driving, like that is a different thing. You know, we know that there's a, uh, uh, you know, with, when we deal with safety issues, uh, like OSHA kind of safety stuff. If you know, if you've been impacted by a thing or you know somebody who's been impacted by a thing, you're going to treat that behavior differently, whether it's like lockout, tag out for electrical work or whatever whatever the thing is. Um, you know that you're going to be more careful. You know that you're going to take it seriously, all this kind of stuff. And so I think one of the questions is how do we give people some of those experiences that feel real? Because one of the problems is we're always fighting against um, the fact that they've got counter experiences, Usually the mm-hmm. the most common elements that I find in kind of these behavioral uh, challenges, the really difficult behavior change things mm-hmm. is either delayed or absent feedback. Um, and then there's always competing priorities, which is not that you have to convince people that it's important. You have to convince people that it's, you know, of the 37 things you're supposed to be doing with any given minute of the day, that it's at least in your top five. Mm-hmm. Um, because they can totally believe it's important, but if it's number 34, you know, then... Right. Yeah. Still not going to yeah. happen because everybody is very very busy. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, the um, the pieces of that start to become really important when we're looking at how do we construct experiences or how do we construct things that actually you know that actually help people and support people with it. And I'm not 100 percent sure if I answered your question. So.
0: I think, I think you got pretty close. I mean, it, there are a lot of different ways that you can get to know your audience. Oh yeah. The yeah. The most yeah, sorry. important thing is doing something. Thank you. No, no, no. You, you, uh,
2: thank you. I was like, I, Bring I lost up. the question somewhere there. Um, Oh, but the response was so good. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about it is, is that what you're trying to do is you're trying to find what's going to feel real to people. What's going to feel urgent to people. What's going to feel important to people. Right. Yeah. Um, and Subject matter experts have a very well-formed understanding of the importance of the topic that they're dealing with, right? Yeah. Um, to the point that they sometimes get a little bit blind to the not everybody cares about the latest update to the Sarbanes Oxley um, <laughs> you know guidelines for whatever you know financial compliance <laughs> thing right? you know very true um, and so if you're not talking to people in the audience you can't understand how they're how they're feeling about this particular topic yeah. and what you want to look for is you want to look for pain points you want to look for What do they care about you want to look for what do they value or think is important and is there a way to connect the behavior to things that they already value um but if you're not having those conversations with anybody in your audience um if you're Mm -hmm. not actually engaging with them or talking to them and the other piece of it is testing things out with them or getting their reaction to it you know we have a tendency when i went to graduate school i spent about half of my time over in what was at the time human computer interaction, um, that is now user experience design more or less. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the big things that we all spent a lot of time there was how do you test solutions with people in your audience? And we have a tendency to send the link out and get it reviewed by SMEs or, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe get things proofread or bug checked or whatever it is, um, and not send it out to our audience and have them tell us what their reactions are to it or much even better, watch them use it. So like the single thing that I think people could do, especially anybody creating any kind of digital resources is put your stuff in front of people, go on a zoom, put yourself in front of people or, you know, platform of your choice, have them share their screen and have them go through it kind of, you know, seeing if they get confused anywhere or if they have questions about something or if they don't, you know, they're they're not reacting well to something or if they are kind of like, wait, what's this or any of those kinds of reactions. So I think talking to the users up front, but then also putting solutions in front of them and getting feedback on it. Um, I think are, you know, the two sort of simplest answers to that question. Mm. Uh, There's obviously a whole lot more that we can be doing. Um, User experience does actually have quite a lot of... um, you know resources out there about interviewing users and understanding what they need and what they care about and things like that. But you know you can't assume that you can just by proxy convey the importance of a topic. You have to help people kind of have the experience or bring in their own experience and and uh, uh, relate it to the to the thing that they're doing. So yes, thank you for reminding me what yeah, the question no, was. <laughs>
0: And it's an easy trap to fall into. It can be so easy to say, well, I've got a subject matter expert who knows this stuff. So obviously they can provide that experience Mm. and that perspective. And as it turns out, it's not actually a substitute at all. It's not even a a possible substitute, really. You really do want to connect in with the people who are going to benefit. I can't tell you how many times I've been...
2: And it's not... I mean, there's lots of people who don't think this way and I'm not applying it to everybody, but I've worked with a number of people over the years who want to tell me that people in their audience... Are lazy, and I'm like, oh. and I'm like, really? Because I don't know any lazy people. Everybody I know is busier no. than they can possibly stand. Right? Um, yeah. And that is the truth. And statement. how did you hire all the lazy people anyway? Because right.
0: <laughs> maybe that's a hiring yeah, problem. Hiring. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That that sounds like an internal thing to take a look yeah. at really quickly. Yeah. Um, and there I I
2: don't. I I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't individuals who are kind of lazy. I'm sure there are, but I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as a whole population where they're lazy. I think they just have other things they're concerned about or other things that they're paying attention to. And we are not the most important thing that they're dealing with on any given day. You know, the the e-learning course for the whatever. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) And again, if it's number 30 on the list. (laughs) Exactly. 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 So, because I mean, we've but, all heard the "what's in it for me," which I think is absolutely important. But it's not just yeah. what's in it for me; it's what's in it for me mm-hmm. that also bumps it up to the top of the list. And the answer um, to yeah. that is, you know, it has to feel important. It has to, you know, be something that that perc- that I perceive to have some e- um, urgency attached to it. And if you don't yeah, have those yeah. things, then it's not it's not going to make it up the list.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Now, as you had stated, uh, we've just scratched the surface. Right, there's so much deeper we could go. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, we are at that point where we ask rapid-fire questions. Okay. However, <laughs> I know people are going to want to know more. So, how can they? Like, is there a website they can go to to get a hold of your books? Or yeah, absolutely. Learn more about you?
2: Um, Uh, the books are available on kind of all the platforms, the Amazons and all the things. Um, the, if you're in the U S the publisher's website, I think is, is, uh, the best deal right now. And they often have like coupon Mm -hmm. codes on that website, which is peachpit.com. But if you can find the links to all of this at my website is usable learning, um, and the book page is usable learning slash elephant for the new book, but then you can obviously find all of, all of the other things. So awesome.
1: Okay. Julie. At the end of every episode, we ask three rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I know that's quite the lead up, huh? Okay. (laughs) So give us one book that everyone must read and why.
2: Yeah. So since we've been talking so much about the user experience piece, I'm going to say there's two books I could pick from um, and I'll I'll cheat and say them both, but then I'll tell you which one. Um, (laughs) uh, The Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman is a classic in the field in terms of thinking about how do you create those environments um, that best support people. Uh, cause that's Mm -hmm. making the task easier to do will pretty much always pay off. There's other things where it may help. It may not help. You have to test and find out, but making the task as easy as possible, uh, pretty much always, uh, it has good return on investment. Um, uh, and then if people are interested in the user testing and things like that, the book there is a book, uh, called don't make me think by Steve Krug, which especially if you're building digital resources is a fantastic and very, you know, Really digestible, easy to read book on how to think, do things like that kind of user testing, um, prototyping and design, and user testing for to make, you know, to make your systems and to make your digital resources as easy as possible. And it is one of the books that I looked at as sort of a model when I was writing my book because I was so impressed with the way it had been done. So, uh, oh, nice. um, Good
1: endorsement. Yeah, there (laughs) we go. Okay, what is one tool that you can't live without?
2: Yeah, um so I'm going to say that currently the like you know, staying again in the digital realm, the tool that makes me the happiest is Calendly. Um mm-hmm. but I know that I'm that's not the um there's other, there's other services that will provide this. And I think it's going to become more common, but not having to have 900 emails back and forth going, okay, well, give me a couple times that you're available next week. Okay. No, I, now I got scheduled over on that one. So what now, you know, like not be having to go back and forth on those. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's so great so I know, a I game love it. changer. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
2: Um, I think one of my, one of my favorite pieces of advice is work is never going to love you back. <laughs> oh,
0: that is good. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, I'm passionate about what I do. I love what I do, but you, you know, kind of at the end of the day, you still work is never going to love you back. So it's, you know, yeah. you, you want to invest yourself, but with limits. So Basically. Yes.
0: <laughs> I love that as a call to action to find yes. the, uh, find not the, the things, but the people mm-hmm. who do love you back and, you know, the animals and things like that. I think that's such <laughs> great advice. It's important to remember. Yeah. Julie, this has been so much fun. Oh, good. I am so glad that you had some time to chat with us and join us for this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. And this is a really fun format and thank you for having me. So. <laughs> Well, and of course, many thanks to all of you in our community for listening and viewing with us today. And before you go, we do have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges.
2: Are you interested in learning more about the Metro DC chapter of ATD or following us on social media? Go to DCATD.org and click on About.
0: Would you like to be even more involved in our wonderful community? Go to DCATD.org and click on Volunteer to get started.